Some of you here will have inevitably heard me bemoan the sorry state of my yard. I grew up in South Carolina, moved to North Carolina for a little while, spent my 30s in a high-rise apartment in Manhattan. And then when my family and I came back south, we ended up in Florida. Florida may not be all that far away from where I was raised in South Carolina, but when it comes to the outdoors, it is an entirely different world. Yes, where I grew up, we had to keep the grass cut. But here it grows so fast that you can see it. Sure, in South Carolina, we all knew about kudzu. But here, there are at least a half dozen different kinds of vines that insist on winding their way around my trees and my fence and my light and even my children if they stand in the same place for too long. Here, there are ferns that invade your flower bed when you aren't looking establishing a beachhead like an invading army. There are stalks of these growing green, thick stalks of rebar that you people call bamboo <laughs> that I can't hardly cut and that even kerosene won't kill. There are days, my friends, when I stand on my back porch and I drink coffee and I watch the jungle that used to be here endeavor to reclaim its land. Yesterday, since it was raining and I couldn't go out into my yard and wage a valiant but futile battle, I decided to try and expand Elijah's understanding of the world around him. So we snuggled up under a blanket and we watched some of David Attenborough's series, Planet Earth. Since he was born in the concrete jungle of New York and is growing up in the literal jungles of Florida, I decided to expose him to something completely different, the barren wastes of the world's deserts. And yet, as we watched and as Sir David walked us through the Sahara and the Gobi and the Atacama and the other great deserts of this world, I was reminded that even the deserts on earth are neither truly barren nor waste. We watched as camels carefully picked flowers off of cacti deftly avoiding the sharp spines with their lips. We saw lizards leap into the air to catch flies fresh from a hatch. Finnick fox cubs tumbled over one another as their parents looked on. Scorpions, reptiles, even frogs came out once the sun went down, having slept through the heat of the day. Instead of being lifeless, it turns out, the deserts are actually teeming with life. 
In our Mark lesson this morning, we find Jesus in just such a place, surrounded by animals such as these. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each recount how after his baptism, Jesus goes out into the wilderness for a 40 days fast. But only Mark adds the evocative note that while there, the wild beasts are with him. None of the Gospels tell us exactly where Jesus went into the wilderness after his baptism. But tradition holds that John was baptizing in the Jordan River just a little bit north of the Dead Sea. So it seems very likely that Jesus would have gone off into the deserts in that part of southern Israel. Picture him there, if you can, sitting with his back to a rock as the sun beats down overhead with camels and foxes and lizards arrayed around him in perfect harmony. An adder coiled at his feet, perhaps. A scorpion walking across the back of his hand. Or picture him being kept company by some of the other creatures that would have been found living in that part of the world in the first century. An ancient aurochs, perhaps, or a Syrian brown bear. Maybe some big cats would have attended to him. Leopards, cheetahs, lions. Picture him there on day 10 of his fast, in his hunger, sitting next to a wild rabbit whose neck he could easily snap. Or picture him there on day 30 of his fast, in his weakness, lying next to a wolf who knows how to snap necks with the best of them. It's hard to picture, to, to actually imagine, because such things are not a part of our world. No, our world, our relationship to the wild animals that are around us is much more like our Genesis text than it is our Mark one. In Genesis this morning, we find Noah and his family just departing the ark. Like Jesus in the wilderness, they have spent 40 days in community with the wild animals of the world. But now, now that the waters have receded, their relationship to those animals enters a new era. The fear and the dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth. God tells them. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants before, I now give you all of it. We miss this in Scripture, I think. But it's right here. Prior to the great flood, humanity would have been vegetarian. But now, now, meat is on the menu. But this comes at a price. The animals 
God says, are now afraid. Domesticating livestock will be difficult. Hunting wildlife will become a painstaking process. Going off into the wilderness alone or unprepared could very easily cost you your life. In a very real sense, as we sit here today, you and I live between these two passages. We live in a world of Genesis 9, of sanctioned bloodshed, a world of fishing, of hunting, a world of husbandry. Yet, insofar as we are called to live into the image of Christ, we are called to reflect the harmony of Mark 1. Jesus with the wild animals in the wilderness. In his desperation as he fasts, neither threatened by them nor a threat to them. And it's not just us. The creation around us is itself divided between predator and prey. If you don't believe me, go and watch Planet Earth by David Attenborough. Look on as a pod of orcas attacks a pod of whales and then drown one of the calves for their meal. See trapdoor spiders spring out of their holes catch their prey, and drag it back down underground. Watch as a giant toad in the jungle swallows a lizard, only to realize too late that it's the kind of lizard whose skin is toxic. And then watch a few minutes later as the lizard crawls back out of the toad's mouth, calmly going about its day after its venom has done its job. And it's not just wild animals, but domesticated animals as well. If you've ever had a cat, then you have likely had it bring you a songbird or a dead mouse as a present. If you've ever kept an aquarium of fish, then you know that certain species are too aggressive to be put in community with others. You know that even the most docile of species of tropical fish have a habit of eating their own young, an instinct that I only rarely sympathize with. None of this is the intended vision for the creation. For that, you have to go and look at the familiar words of the prophet Isaiah. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, he says. The leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the lion and the fatling together. A little child shall lead them. They won't hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the seas cover, as the waters cover the seas. And yet here we are in a world defined by Genesis chapter 9, with nature all around us, red in tooth 
and claw. But at the same time, at the same time, isn't it interesting that right after the earth's creatures are given to humanity for food in Genesis 9, God then mentions those animals once more. Then God said to Noah and to his family with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This, of course, is the Bible's origin story of the rainbow. I have set my bow in the clouds, God says, as a sign of my covenant. But what we miss when we look at this story is that God doesn't just make his promise to Noah and to his family, God makes this promise to the animals as well. God, in other words, doesn't just talk to the people. He talks to all of his creatures. And he tells them, I am making you a promise. He tells them, I see you for who you are and you matter. He tells them, each of them, all of them, I love you. You are my beloved creatures. The animals, you see, the animals here, they aren't just passive, but they're active. They're not just witnesses to what is going on. They are participating in what is going on. They are as much of a part of this covenant with God as Noah is, or as anyone else. Which takes us back to our Mark text and to Jesus there in the wilderness. Over and over again in Scripture, in Genesis, in Isaiah, as we saw earlier, even in Paul's letters, it's made clear that redemption is not just for us, for people. It is, in fact, for everyone and everything. Birds of the air, fish of the seas, cats and dogs, lions, tigers, and bears. The entire world, the entire creation, Therefore, it is only right if, as Mark has it, Jesus also makes time in his ministry to commune with nature. It's only right that the animals of this world, and not just the people animals, but all the rest of the animals, predator and prey alike, are given a chance to be with their Lord, their Maker, and their Redeemer the one who loves them, the one who has come to set their world straight just as he has come to set our world straight 
as well. Because you see, my friends, as it turns out, you and I are not the only wild things that God has come to redeem. Amen. My friends, the love of God is bigger than the entire creation. The love of God is more powerful than whatever brokenness we might see around us or within us. It encompasses all things. It knows and understands and when necessary forgives all things. It loves all things even the wild animals, even us. If you're here today and you need that love, you need that forgiveness, you need that grace. If you're here today and you know that, you know the power of that love, its depth, its breadth, its warmth. And you want to share that love with the world around us as a member of this family of then now is the time in our service when such things might be made known publicly as we stand together as we are able and sing.